0: Good morning, church. If you have a copy of God's word this morning, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the prophet Amos this morning. Amos. Amos is a table of contents book. So let me let me put you at ease here. Uh, Some of you say, What did he just say? Where do so if you open up to the old testament. If you get to Jonah, you've gone too far. Amos is between Joel and Obadiah. I want to even help you a little bit more here. If you take the Pew Bible and turn with me to page 764, you're going to find Amos. It's just not a place. It's not a a landing spot that often we come to in evangelical churches. Amos is not a place that we spend weeks and months preaching through. Oftentimes, somebody came up to me after the first service at 825 and said, David, I don't know if I've ever heard a sermon on Amos. And I said, I've never preached a sermon on Amos either. So so you heard the first sermon and I preached the first sermon here. So uh, Amos is a a word from the Lord that I think is helpful for us to hear as we we light the Advent candle of joy. And we long for joy to, to come in the midst of whatever our circumstances might be. Amos has a a word to speak to us. Eight months ago, I was praying through what I'd be preaching on, and we settled on this series, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. knew that we'd be in the prophets through this Christmas season. And what I'm discovering is how relevant an 8th century B.C. prophet could be to December of 2019. Hear from the prophet Amos in the eighth chapter, verses four through seven. Amos 8, four through seven. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and bring the poor of the land to an end, saying, When will the new moon be over that we may sell grain? And the Sabbath that we may offer wheat for sale, that we may make the ephod small and the shekel great and deal deceitfully with false balances, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and sell the chaff of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their deeds." I know what you're thinking. We get up this morning. Got the kids to church. We're in one piece. We On the second Sunday of Advent, just want to sing some Christmas carols. Hear a story about Joseph, the adopted father of Jesus. Or maybe something about Mary. Maybe even something about Jesus coming to forgive us of our sins. There in a manger and swaddling cloths. And here I say turn to the prophet Amos. I think probably we know more about the cookie brand, famous Amos cookies, than we do the prophet Amos. I mean, really, and that, that is some of the difficulty of it, is it? Because there's, there's much of Amos that is elusive to us here. Amos is a prophet in the 8th century B.C., he is one of the first missionaries. He lived in a small town called Tekoa, 10 miles outside of Jerusalem. And guess what God says to Amos? He says, I want you to leave your home, and I want you to travel to the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. And I want you to preach a message of my judgment against the injustice that is being committed before my people. I want you to preach a message that they will be judged for their sin. Now, what was the sin of the nation of Israel? Well, this is the sin of economic exploitation is the sin. It's a strange time in the history of the nation of Israel. It's a, it's a time where you have competing world empires like the Assyrians and the Egyptians in this unique slither of time in Amos' land where, where they are not at the, at the place of prominence that they have been nor will they be in the future. So the nation of Israel has, has a place and a time of economic prosperity, Now that economic prosperity of the nation of of Israel is is found because they're able to control some very strategic trade routes. And so economic wealth comes to them, but this is a story where the haves get more and the have-nots have less, where the rich get more and more and more and the poor become more and more destitute. So God is condemning, he is condemning the accumulation of wealth to the exploitation of the poor that is occurring in the nation of Israel. And so the first message that Amos preaches for the first eight chapters is a call for true justice. It's a call for true justice. In Amos chapter 8, what I've read for us, is indicative of much of the book of Amos you have. Amos saying, God is condemning you as a people. Verse 4, hear this of chapter 8. You who trample on the needy, and bring the poor of the land to an end. Amos, how in the world were they doing that? Well, verse 5, you make the ephod small and the shekel great. You deal deceitfully with false balances. So there is, there is this conniving that is occurring with the currency in such a way that the rich continue to grow in their wealth and the poor continue to be destitute. What was the result of this? Verse 6 of chapter 8, they buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Now, it is easy for you to, to lose what Amos is talking about here specifically. It's easy for us to read this and not really understand what he is talking about. Silver in Amos' day is a synonym for a large loan or oftentimes even a huge debt. So what Amos is saying is, is that the economic condition of the nation of Israel is such that someone would have to take out a loan for a pair of shoes, There's the elite of the day, the merchants of the day. They have uh, this enormous buying power. And so the merchants could charge this astronomical price for the necessities of life, for food and for clothing. And so the poor, the destitute, they would literally have to go in debt to be able to clothe themselves in the nation of Israel. They they would literally have to go in debt to be able to eat. And so Amos comes to the nation of Israel and says, no. No. No more. The cries of the poor and the exploited will, will no longer. The judgment of God is coming upon the nation of Israel. This is sure. It is from the Lord, and it does happen. 722 BC, decades after Amos gives this message, so the nation of Israel falls to the Assyrians. So we know that this prophecy is a prophecy that is filled within the decades after Amos preaches this message. Now, you need to understand that God had set up his law to prevent this from happening. The Mosaic law, when you go back to Exodus and when you go back to the book of Leviticus, you have all of these laws that seem so specific, but there are many of them, not all of them, but many of them are to protect the poor. You have gleaning laws that are going to be so relevant for the book of Ruth. For when the foreigner is in the land, there is food for them to be able to glean even from other harvests. You have the poor and you have laws where debts are forgiven. You have the day of Jubilee where, where land is restored. And so you have, even within God's sovereign laws, a way to protect the poorest of the poor. And it was Absolutely ignored to the benefit of the elite, to the benefit of the merchants, to the benefit of those that had so much. And God says, No, no more. Judgment is coming. Now, listen, you, you want to win friends and influence people. Judgment and messages of judgment, that's not the way. It wasn't the way in the 8th century. It's certainly not the way in 2019. I mean, you rarely even hear the judgment of God. You rarely hear the justice of God. Grace, mercy, forgiveness, amen and amen and amen. But I, I would just tell you, you cannot understand grace. You cannot understand forgiveness. You cannot understand mercy without understanding the whole character of God, which is a character that includes judgment and justice. At God's essence... At his very DNA, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God is holy. He's holy other. He's set apart. He's morally pure. So how does a holy God, that that Isaiah could say, holy, 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 as he sees the seraphs there in the temple. How, How does a holy, holy, holy God deal with sinful humanity? He doesn't deal with sinful humanity by saying, well, boys will be boys. He doesn't deal with sinful humanity by saying, well, you know the kids today? Maybe they'll grow out of it. He doesn't deal with sinful humanity by turning a blind eye. He deals with sinful humanity through his judgment and through his justice. Why? Because as a holy God, sin is in opposition to his character, to his essence. Now now you're here and you might be saying, I'm considering the claims of Christianity. I wouldn't consider myself a follower of Jesus. And it very well may be that one of the stumbling blocks to you placing your faith in Christ is an intellectual hang-up around the themes of justice and judgment. How could I, you might be thinking, follow a God who is a God of judgment? But but in some respects. If we were to flip that question around, I might want to ask you, how could we worship a God who wasn't a God of perfect judgment and perfect justice? I think in the 21st century, we were one of the first generations that even even wrestles with that question because we live in a land of such affluence and prosperity. We, we live in a land where our Christian freedom oftentimes can, can go without us appreciating what the majority world experiences as Christians in the midst of the persecuted the church. And, and for the persecuted church, the judgment of God and the justice of God, is a, it is a wonderful comfort. Christianity Today a few years ago profiled a man by the name of Ima Ima was living all of his life along with his family in the Republic of Congo. Cruel atrocities came upon his family, in the midst of a tyrannical rule that he, and along with his family, wanted to escape. There was death that intersected with his family. There was persecution which intersected with his family for him believing in the claims of Christianity. And so in the dead of night, he, along with his three children and his wife, they escaped from the Republic of Congo, and they fled into Uganda, and there were refugees. They had nothing. They had nothing to their name. They took shelter in this makeshift shelter. They, they uh, ultimately had no water, no electricity where they were staying. They had enough resources to be able to provide a meal for all five of them every other day. This is what they're experiencing. And when Christianity Today sat down and interviewed this believer that had gone through this, do you know what comforted him? Listen to his words. You know, I never could believe the gospel if it were not for the judgment of God. Eman, what do you mean by that? Listen is what he says. I know, I know that I will never get justice in this world for what has occurred to my family. I know this. And I couldn't cope, he says. I couldn't cope if I knew that justice was never going to be done. Amos is saying, that the judgment of God is coming upon the nation of Israel because injustice reigns. But he is saying to the destitute, he is saying to the poor, that your cries are heard. Your tears are noticed. Your, Your pains do not just fall on a deaf ear, but there will be for every wrong a right that is eternally done in God's omniscient plan. And injustice, while it might reign around us, while evil might seem to have the upper hand, you turn on the news, you open up the newspaper, you see that evil is around us even as we long for his second coming. That injustice is here even in our world. It surprises us. It's not an everyday existence for us, but the reality that we do not live in the Garden of Eden is before us and around us and it is inside of us every day. And Amos reminds us that the judgment of God is a comfort, because the justice of God means that every wrong will be made right in his sovereign plan. So Amos says, even to a people, the nation of Israel, punishment is coming your way. Judgment is coming your way. There will be destruction that comes your way because of sin. But understand, that there is not only the call for true justice, but there's the promise of true justice. Because Amos, for eight chapters, he 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 dwells in the judgment of God. But in chapter nine of Amos, he doesn't, he, he moves from a prediction of the destruction of the nation of Israel to another day. There's a glimpse that Amos gets as he's saying. Judgment is coming. Destruction is coming. But there is something beyond that. And for the nation of Israel, what Amos is comforting them with is no matter what you go through, God still has a plan for you. No matter even the punishment of the Lord, God still has a plan for you. So even to those uh, followers in the nation of Israel who have experienced injustice and those who will go through the pain and the punishment that is going to come before them in the decades to come, He is saying there is a final story that gets the last word. Look with me in Amos chapter 9. We we move to a prediction and a prophecy that's twofold. In verses 11 through 15. In that day, as we think of the promise of true justice, in that day I will raise up the booth of David. That's fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as is in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations. Notice what Amos is saying all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord, who does this. Now Notice that Amos doesn't say, we'll do this, does this. It it will be done, he's saying. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land. And they'll never shall again be uprooted out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. There are two prophecies in these passages that we need to hold on to. Amos is saying, I am, there is going to be a day of a Messiah who is going to come, verse 11, and he is going to raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches. That the very kingdom of David that is divided Northern Empire, Southern Empire, Judah, Israel, what's divided here, one day is going to be brought back together, and there is going to be one from the Davidic line that is going to come, and he is going to establish a kingdom that is going to bless all the nations. Notice what Amos is saying. It's not surprising to us when we turn to the New Testament in Acts chapter 15, you have what's called the Jerusalem Council. The early Christians there in Jerusalem, along with Paul and Silas, that were ministering to the Gentiles, they have to get together. And they have to say, will the gospel go just to those of the nation of Israel, or will it go outside of the nation of Israel? And you know what passage that they draw upon to be able to say it needs to go to everyone? They draw upon this passage. Amos chapter 9. Amos chapter 9, they draw upon to say, listen, that the message of the gospel, the message that God has come and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the very one who bears the wrath of our sin, that that is a message that goes not just to the nation of Israel, but it goes to every person that will call upon the name of God. So you in this room, which is the majority of us that don't have backgrounds in ethnic Israel, that's not our ethnicity. We are here in this room because of the fulfillment of this prophecy. We're a part of the nations that are being blessed through the Messiah who comes. So this prophecy here is a prophecy of the first coming of Jesus that offers salvation for every person that calls upon his name. And notice, notice the beauty of the way God accomplishes our salvation. He is speaking to people that face injustice. And he is saying that there will be one who comes, we know that person to be Jesus, who lives a perfect life, who has a ministry of teaching and healing, he dies a death, he is raised on the third day, but he does all of this not to bring judgment, we still got to deal with the judgment of God, we still got to deal with the justice of God, he doesn't come, Jesus, to bring judgment, he comes to bear the judgment of the world. He comes to bear the judgment of God for all of us here. Jesus doesn't come as a conquering general. He he doesn't come as one who is a king. He comes what? He comes as one who's a victim of injustice. He comes as one who's a victim of oppression. He comes as one who is betrayed by 30 pieces of silver. He, Jesus, received what he didn't deserve on a cross. He received injustice, and he suffered injustice on earth, and it is a comfort to us when we surface, uh, we suffer injustice on this earth. He knows what it is to be betrayed. He knows what it is to hurt. He knows what it is to experience injustice. There's nothing worse in the world. When tears are flowing, when there's grief before you, when there's sorrow all around you, and in that moment, someone who is well meaning oftentimes comes up to you in the midst of the funeral home and in the midst where you're making plans, in the midst where there's a prodigal son or prodigal daughter who has not come back home, and they come to you in that moment and they say, I know exactly what you're going through. And even if they've walked a similar road, there's something about those words that always just ring hollow. Because we have a unique size shoe. We have a unique imprint of grief upon all of our lives. And it's just a unique journey that all of us walk. And nobody really can say, I know exactly what I'm going through. Except for one. Your mom, your dad, they can't say it. Your friend, they can't say it. A son or a daughter, they can't say it. But one can. There is one who has been tempted every way as we are yet without sin. There is one that knows injustice. There is one that knows grief. There is one that is well acquainted with sorrows. There is one in the face of Mary and Martha when they said, if you would have been here, our brother would not have died. And then we read in John chapter 11, what? We read that Jesus wept. So when you weep, understand that your Savior knows what it's like to feel tears on his cheek. When injustice comes your way, understand that he's walked the road of injustice. When pain comes your way, understand that he at the Garden of Gethsemane said, Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, not my will. But your will be done. I can't say. I can't say as your pastor. I know what you're going through. The person sitting next to you can't truly say, I know what you're going through. The person that comes behind you or the person that comes in front of you, they can't say, I know exactly what you're going through. But we have one in our Savior who on the cross bore all of the injustice upon the world. Every sin of humanity was placed upon him. And so every grief he is well acquainted with. Every pain he is well acquainted with. Every injustice he is well acquainted with. And this is a hope to us, but it's not the end of the story. Because it isn't enough to have a suffering servant that comes alongside of us, that can empathize with us. The story of the gospel is what we discover in Amos chapter 9 that predicts not just his first coming, but predicts his second coming. And notice the beautiful imagery of Amos chapter 9 where we begin to see not just the prophecy of Jesus coming at Christmas, but we have a prophecy. Of behold the days, verse 13, that are coming when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes. Him who sows the seed, the mountains, the mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I'm going to restore the fortunes of many people, my people of Israel. They shall rebuild the ruined cities and they inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. We're not there yet. You know what this is? This is a a prophecy of what is ahead for us in the second coming of Jesus Christ, where, where he comes not just as the Prince of Peace, but he comes as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords that at his name every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. He comes not as a suffering servant in his second coming, but he comes as the victorious king. And Amos is saying that as God created As God created the uh, Garden of Eden, so it will be in the new heaven and the new earth that we are going to have what God accomplished in the Garden of Eden is going to be our eternal habitation. This is your future. This is my future. In that land of Israel... What, what Amos is saying, on the side of the mountains where it would be arid and dry, where you couldn't, you couldn't plant anything, there is going to be a time where it is going to be so fertile, it's going to be so abundant, that the grapes are going to drip in such a way that wine flows down the mountains. So what more beautiful imagery can Amos give to us of a place of absolute abundance? And he's saying, he's saying to the nation of Israel, destruction is coming your way, but it's not the end of the story. He is saying to you and to me that death and destruction and evil and injustice, it can come our way, but it's not the end of the story. My granddad was this avid reader. I would go to his house and oftentimes he'd have 10 books, 12 books stacked on his nightstand. I would always say, granddaddy, how in the world can you read this many books? He would say, David, I don't read all of these books. I just turn to the last page and if I love the way that it ends, I go back and read the rest of the book. And Amos is giving us a glimpse of the last page. Amos doesn't know this, but Amos is seeing Revelation 21 and Revelation 22 here. He is seeing the end of the story. Now, some of you, all of us, we're not on the last page, are we? We're we're on a page where pain can be around us. We're on a page where sorrow can abound. We're on a page where hurt intersects our life. We're on a page where evil occurs. We're on a page where ultimately we need to be reminded it's not the last page. It's not the last page. Amos says, let me tell you about the last page. It's a page where there's no more poverty and there's no more injustice. There's a a page where there's no more racism and there's no more political divides. There's a page that is coming before you that's the last page where there's no more doctor's visits and there's no more diagnoses and there's no more endless treatment options before you. It's a place where cruelty forevermore is going to be vanquished. It is a place that we will truly experience peace on earth, goodwill to men forever because the Prince of Peace is coming and he is the King of Kings and the Lord of lords. That is our destination. That's not the page you're on. That's not the page I'm on. But Amos says, John, the revealer says, the prophet, he says, there is a final page in the revelation, he tells us. And Amos says, I know at times, I know at times that it can look dark and it can be disappointing, but it's not the final page. I know at times it can be difficult and it can be disappointing, but it's not the final page. I know that you can be on a page that feels that it is painful and that it is hurtful, but church, it's not the final page. It's not the final page. 1719, Isaac Watts sits down and he pins one of the most beautiful songs that we as a church sing. We sing it oftentimes at Christmas, but it's really not a Christmas song per se. It's a song to sing at Christmas, no doubt, but it's a song to sing that predicts not the first Advent as much as it predicts the second Advent, and we know it to be joy to the world. Why is there joy to the world? Well, the third stanza speaks to the prophet Amos, and it speaks to your heart, and it speaks to my heart if we would have ears to hear and eyes to see. Isaac Watts says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He, Jesus, the conquering king, comes to make his blessings flow, far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. That church is good news. That, church, is news that we can say this to. Maranatha, Maranatha, Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let us pray. So it is, God, that we come to you this morning hearing a word from your prophet, a word that spoke to the people of that day and a word that speaks to the people of our day. Allow us to have the vision to see that no matter the page of life that is being written around us and through us and in us, it's not the final page, it's not the final destination, it's not the last word to be written. Thank you that you give us a glimpse of where we're headed and in the midst of a world, even during this Advent season, those well acquainted with sorrows and grief, those well acquainted with injustice and pain, that you are God who rights every wrong. You're God who will personally wipe away every tear from the eyes of grieving mothers and fathers. Give us comfort as we walk by faith and not by sight. Thank you, God. We pray this in your Son, our Savior's name, Jesus.